0: Hello everyone, this week I am very excited to be covering a fascinating script which was the winner of this year's dramatic screenplay competition at the Austin Film Festival. It's based on a true story which is honestly one of the most heartbreaking and harrowing legal cases in the history of the Commonwealth, the story of the young woman. This week's conversation is again in the format of a writer interview episode, and I'm joined by Edward Drake, who I look forward to introducing to you shortly. Throughout The Young Woman, you can tell there is a very interesting voice behind the retelling of the event, so I'm very pleased to be able to bring you this conversation and have Ed share some of his insights and thoughts about his writing process. Just to give you a bit of an overview of the story, because it does have some very tough subject matter, the main character is kept anonymous and is always referred to as The Young Woman, and we follow her life in a small town in Australia, her quite shocking and horrifying sexual abuse at the hands of her stepfather, and how her case was brought to the highest courtroom in the country after she defended herself by shooting and killing her abuser. Because this is a screenplay I really hope you will one day be able to read yourself, or indeed see made into a film, we've been careful not to reveal much more about the plot than that, and so even though the story may not be for everyone... There is certainly a very important place for these kinds of topics and discussions, and for those of you who are interested in hearing about it, I hope you enjoy the episode. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to The 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Caldwell, and today I'm joined by Edward Drake, who is a writer and director based in Los Angeles, and the winner of this year's Best Dramatic Screenplay at the Austin Film Festival. Ed, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, William.
0: So let's start out by talking about your career, so far up to the point of this year, where you entered the Austin Film Festival. And I mean, congratulations on the the award to begin with, for all the listeners who won't have heard of you yet. Where did you grow up and how did you get involved in writing for film?
1: Cheers. Cheers. Yeah. It's uh it's been a wild ride. Big fan of the podcast as well.
0: Oh, wow, well, thank you.
1: Podcasts have actually really been uh quite fundamental in how I became a writer professionally and made that jump over. And there was a great podcast, it's still ongoing by uh Jeff Goldsmith who has been interviewing writers for years and years, and it's a great feed. But yeah, I started in Melbourne, Australia, and I did all my schooling there, and I was always writing as a kid, and I snuck onto a film set when I was about 15 for a show called The Pacific, and that was Spielberg and Tom Hanks producing it, Mm -hmm. and I transformed downtown Melbourne.
0: Most expensive TV show ever made, I believe, at the time.
1: I don't doubt it. Probably, yeah. Hell yeah. Because what they did to Melbourne to transform it into like a wartime period was incredible. And I was walking around and I remember a grip came up to me and he said, You're not supposed to be here. And I'm like, No, no, I'm not supposed to be here, but it is pretty cool. And he's like, All right, just don't touch anything. And if anyone ever asks why you're here, just say you're with Craft Services. And I was like, What's that? Like they're the food people and no one cares about the food people. So it's your golden ticket. And sure enough, I still use that excuse to this day to get onto film sets if I'm just walking past. (laughs) So then um, I actually met someone on that set and then I did a bit of like low key PA work, some stuff with the history channel while I was still in high school. And then I applied for film school and I got rejected four years in a row and uh, love it. That was uh, a fantastic experience. They tried to list me as alumni recently from this film school in Australia. And I was just like, oh, no, I had to send a very nice email being like, no, no, I did not study with you. So then I moved over to, I got a job offer to go to LA uh, to work at a company called Anonymous Content. And I get there and I worked on a show called True Detective, season one that was fantastic. That really showed me a lot of the biggest differences between the Australian and English and American film industries and how they run their sets behind the scenes as well. And so uh, from that point forward, I was an assistant uh, working with uh, some pretty cool producers. And then I went on to start doing music videos and then music videos led to commercials and then commercials finally led me to the promised land of feature films. And I was writing every single day, every every single day since I was six or seven. I can't think of a day where I haven't actually just been coming up with a story. And My teachers used to hate it. They'd always stick me in the back of a classroom because they're like, oh, "He's not going to listen to the what it, what we have to say anyway. We'll, we'll just let him do his thing." But I'm kind of grateful for it because it just you know I'm an only child, and so I had to find ways to entertain myself, and and that leads me to here right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, I dare say you probably got more education on the set of True Detective than you might have done in film school, so it's great how those things kind of turn out. That's some of the best writing in, in television on, on that show. Oh, absolutely. Sp- especially the first season.
1: Do you know the know one of the funniest things? Nobody involved in that show behind the scenes. There were only like two of the producers, uh, Steve Golan, who was a great man, and uh, Michael Sugar, really solid producer they were the only two people that believed that it was going to be a hit. Mm. Everyone else thought it was going to be this weird little thing. No one had any faith in it, but those two, you know, they fought for that project tooth and nail. And uh, I'm so grateful that I got, you you're absolutely right. In the first two weeks that I was working with them, I learned more than I had in, you know, all the years leading up to that about how something is made. Yeah. Very grateful.
0: That's very cool. That's very cool. Um, so one of the things I did want to ask you as well, just in the in the same kind of realm, is who are the major influences for you in terms of either writers and filmmakers as well as maybe teachers or colleagues that you have?
1: Ever since I was a kid, I always looked up to Stephen Thunenberg, hmm. and there was just something that I always gravitated towards, his work, and the first thing was Ocean's Eleven that he did, and Ted Griffin's script for that is an absolute masterpiece it is i don't know if you i don't think you've covered it on your podcast yet but if
2: no i haven't were, yet
1: no call me back for that episode dude because it's a work of absolute genius and then shane black i loved lethal weapon as a kid i saw it when i was way too young and i was just like this is awesome this is what movies are supposed to be and yeah i think that scott frank as well john logan there's so uh, well, you know, William Monahan. There's far too many writers, like great writers out there that I all, I steal from liberally. And uh, but no, I think reading. I, I just read a lot as a kid, and I still read a lot to this day. And not just screenplays, but anything that comes my way. If it's a book recommendation from a friend or something, I mean, that's the biggest influence on me. It's just been oh, cool. This is a cool. This is an interesting story. I never never looking down on something just because it's genre.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, I, I I completely agree, especially with the, you know, Ocean's Eleven can be dismissed as this kind of big blockbuster style film, but when you actually consider all of the challenges in writing a film like that with so many different plot lines and devices in terms of deception, that you need to trick the audience into believe one thing's happening and then something else is happening. Mm-hmm. You've got to juggle a lot of characters, moving pieces, and everything like that. It must be an absolute nightmare to write the whole thing out and try and, you know, try and actually make it a compelling screenplay. And the easiest thing in the world is to see something done well and think, oh, that meant it was easy.
1: I. It, that's exactly it. It's that effortlessness that... I think that it was just this perfect unison, even with Ocean's 12. Ocean's 11 might be the better movie, but Ocean's 12, I I, I like maybe a little bit more because it's just so wild and it swings to the fences. And I can't think of a major blockbuster in the past 50 years that really goes for it, having Julia Roberts play Julia Roberts. I mean, I remember seeing that for the first time and that was just a great moment in an audience being of like, what is going on? I love it. I'm here for it. And I live for those moments.
0: Cool. Um, so let's talk a little bit about this year's competition as well. Mm -hmm. So how many screenplays had you written up to this point? And with this one, did you, is it the first one you felt ready to, you know, submit to a competition and kind of be graded by, you know, a panel of judges and potentially getting some, some tough feedback from them?
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It was a, if I'm being quite honest with you, I forgot that I submitted it until I got the call. So I was doing commercials for a few years and then I found a producer who would take a chance on me to make this little film called Broil. And we had a budget of 148,000 Canadian for it. So it just made that. And I had, I'd been telling people about the story of the young woman for like, 10 years.
2: Mm, okay,
1: It's a true story. It's an incredible... And I, I. so many people come up to me and be like, I want to be a writer but I just don't know. I don't have a good story to write. I'm like, well, here's a great one and it's a true crime. It's, you know, it'll sell like hotcakes. The audience is going to be there and you're going to create a new hero for, you know, the next generation. And no one would write it. I'd tell, I'd, I'd tell them the story and just for whatever reason they get distracted, they get bored but no one would write it. And so then after I did this movie broil I had a bit of downtime and I just wrote it I spent three days at a cafe called spade in Vancouver and I just wrote this thing and there was a producer that was really interested to read it and we were going to work together on on something else and I just said here what do you think of this and he was like this is amazing and I was like "Yeah, yeah, yeah whatever and then I kind of forgot about it and then Then I submitted it to the Nichols and to Austin. And the only reason I submitted it to those two festivals was purely because of the Script Notes podcast with John August and Craig Mm Mazin. And I'm a big believer that most screenwriting competitions are cash grabs, absolutely, because there are so few success stories that come out. And you've got to think of it from the perspective of like, the executives, the agents, the producers. Like, there there are so many of these competitions, so few are actually taken seriously. But um, John August said uh, that it's Austin and The Nickel. And I'm so grateful that uh, the young woman did quite well in in both of them.
0: Austin is certainly something that's been on my radar for a while, certainly since I started doing the podcast. You're the second Austin Film Festival winner that I've featured. Uh, Early on, I featured... Benjamin Folk, who won the playwriting competition in 2018, I believe. His play also was um, based on a courtroom, cool. uh, you know, a, a legal ruling as well. His was about the last two men to be executed for the crime of homosexuality in the United Kingdom, uh, which again is a compelling story in itself and it, you probably would like to meet Ben, actually, because one of the characters, uh, you know, the one who survives is actually shipped off wow. to Australia as his punishment. It's a fate just slightly better than death, apparently, <laughs> uh, in the eyes of the British government. Absolutely. Yeah, Austin itself, I think, what works about it. Um, I went last year. I I skipped going this year because of the, you know, the virtual situation. And that's just me in terms of my own personality. I really struggle with these online panels but what Austin has is this so many opportunities Mm -hmm. to mingle and meet and just chat with other people who share the same passion it's a real writers festival it does have the film festival Mm -hmm. tagged on to it but the primary focus is on writing and so that really is in terms of aside from maybe the London screenwriters festival it's it's kind of the biggest one in the world in terms of just Mm -hmm. getting as many people who love writing together in one place and just lets them loose in the city of Austin for about four days and sets up lots of events for them to meet each other and mingle and kind of find people who they, they connect with. So I think it's a really great thing, not just in terms of people thinking about their career yeah. and, oh, if I win this, would this be great for my career? But it's also about remembering that writing for film or television is often very collaborative even if you're just the sole writer on the project, you're going to need input from all kinds of people along the course of the journey. And so kind of fostering that mentality early on in terms of just meeting and uh, critiquing, getting to know other people, hearing other perspectives, I think is a really good thing. And hopefully next year we'll have a an in-person festival again.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Collaboration is my favorite part of making movies. I think a lot of directors... To try and play the auteurism card, but there are hundreds of people that go into making a film. And yeah, big shout out to Sage at uh, the Austin Film Festival as well, because he was the head of the script competition there and he had his work cut out for him this year because it was all virtual, but they have just an amazing cause and a really good group of people. And there's a great energy and, yeah i can't wait for for there to be a physical edition again so that uh i can join that madness because the story is legendary even before i entered the competition i'd always heard that austin was the one to go to and i got real close about two years ago but then i think uh i think i got booked on something and but yeah i can't wait to get down there
0: yeah the only difficulty is that it's uh it's a very long festival and you've got to most writers are not based in Texas, so there's a lot of travel involved to get there and everything like that. That's
1: kinda of cool. It kind of thins the herd a little bit. You've got to want to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah. We've noticed, you know, bizarrely, festivals don't really take off in LA in the same way. It's 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 better to go on the road.
1: Yep. Get a bit of distance.
0: So all right, let's talk about the young woman. So I think the important thing to really start out with with this is just to kind of acknowledge what the subject matter is, because some people may find this something that they don't particularly want to listen to, or it is a tough story. How would you summarize what The Young Woman is about?
1: Thematically, it does deal with abuse and yeah, sexual abuse of, that spans years, and also uh, injustice as well. And I know though those themes are very close to the surface for certain people. So if it's not your, if this is not a story that you're interested in hearing more about, um, no hard feelings. Um yeah, I wanted to give a little disclaimer, a little warning, just in case there are people that are triggered by the, the plot of the young woman and, and what she went through, yeah.
0: And so this is based on real events, and this took place in the early 2000s in Australia, I believe.
1: That's correct. Yeah, it's a true uh, true story about a young woman who, um, from between the ages of 14 to 18, she was horrendously abused by her stepfather in the small town of Marukna, which is about A two and a half hour drive out of melbourne australia and it's really a a small town would even call this a small town rutner is uh very very limited opportunities uh just recently had major issues with um methamphetamine abuse it is not a place of hope at -hmm. all but the story of the young woman um is uh, this is where where she came from and it's incredible that we surrounded by all that despair um, she was able to do what she did and, uh, and really change the course of uh, law and order in Australia from that point forward um, so I guess I should just break down what the story is about so that we can then talk about it a little bit
0: yeah um, I'm especially interested in hearing a little bit about this legal. Situation because, in order for her to change the face of law and protections for women on, in Australia, it suggests that something was very misbalanced beforehand.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, one night, the young woman, uh, the stepfather, came into the young woman's bedroom and, uh, with a shotgun and said, uh, Come into the shed, um, you're going to give me a blowjob. And they go into the shed, and after the act's been performed, the stepfather places the shotgun down by uh his side and stands up to zip himself up and she grabs the shotgun and shoots off the back of his head and that's in the script I think that's around the page fifty mark
0: yeah i, f- I feel that's your your midpoint right in in terms of the looking at the screenplay from a structural point of view, there's kind of Everything that leads up to this point, then this, of course, is obviously a crime. It's uh, yeah. you know, it's murder in a sense of the word, and then there's also the extent to which the idea of murder extends into self-defense, mm-hmm. and so you can then investigate those concepts for the second yeah, half of the that's, film.
1: That's exactly it, no, spot on, because it's quite a, a Australia back then was quite an interesting. Um, and pretty terrible uh, in a pretty terrible place when it came to protections for women. And so uh, this shooting happened. Um, uh, 2000. This the legal saga happens around 2007, 2008. But in 2004, there was an update to the Crimes Act, which the language was changed, but it hadn't been tested yet. So. Protections were extended to uh, for uh, an act of self-defense, which prevented uh, future injury, even if the life of uh, the individual wasn't in immediate danger, only extended towards spouses and wives. Hmm. And the language was very clear there. And so prosecutors didn't know how a jury would react when it was tested with, you know, she was not the wife. She was someone that was under his care you know, technically a stepdaughter. Um, So a lot of people were very publicly trying to decide whether it was murder or Mm self-defense. And so you had that little echo chamber that was created where potential jurors were already influenced before they had the opportunity to decide for themselves. And it's fascinating. I love a good courtroom drama. And this one's Stranger Than Fiction.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, I think injustice as a as a topic is something that has had a very universal resonance in in film, particularly because it's a even this year. You know, we've had the the trial of the mm-hmm. Chicago Seven, um, Aaron Sorkin's latest, which goes back all the way to these legacies, Twelve Angry Men, To Kill a Mockingbird. I think what works really well in film in terms of trying to look at a courtroom drama is that you can show what really happened and then the way those facts are twisted in a courtroom or the way that you can see how the how the powers that be try to manipulate especially as you know our, our legal system is based on everyone having a right to defense no matter how guilty they may be and anyone no matter how innocent they might be there's a prosecution that's got to try and prove that they are guilty. You know, these two contending forces, and that even though that theoretically sets us up for one of the most just systems, as opposed to, say, the Napoleonic system, which is you're guilty until you're proven innocent, of course, there are still fundamental flaws, and so much great drama has been made out of these stories where there's just something that doesn't quite fit with the wording of the law. And and so that is fascinating in itself. Australia, would you say it's more of a conservative country than even, you know, Britain or the United States?
1: In a lot of ways, yes. It's a, yeah, depends where you go. Um, state to state is also very different as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think what I wanted to try to look at is the transactional nature of a lot of courtroom drama and Show that it's a lot of it is about perspective and being able to see it from the victim or you know, defendant's point of view. And I think that that hasn't that's not a point of view that I've seen captured too many times, especially when it comes to this kind of subject matter. And I think it'd be good to say that the script is actually a dark comedy that features musical numbers,
0: yes. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> I think we'll talk a little bit about you know just your approach and and everything like that because again this could sound very very heavy mm-hmm. and you found a lot of ways to make not to make light of the subject but probably the best way I can describe it is that it's it's the teenage girl's lens that is really what's coming through you're you're not writing as necessarily edward drake uh 30 something australian man you are trying to inhabit part of the headspace of teenage yeah. australian girl going back in time a little bit and figuring out apologies if i got your age wrong by 29. the 29
1: thank you very much william 29 uh i might look 40 but that's only because of this industry <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah sorry about that it, it was an honest mistake um yeah, so all I really wanted to really get into here is just how these kind of things are interpreted from that, from that time period, you know. With, with stories about teenhood, often it is that events that happen when you're a teen are very formative in your life. You're experiencing so many things for the first time and you're figuring out who you are. And then to add something this horrendous on top of a normal person's development... Mm-hmm you can explore that by looking at the character herself and kind of her evolving perception. I I don't know if you mentioned this specifically in the screenplay, but there is a almost a bit of an Amelie feel, feel to yep. it, isn't there? It's just kind of, there's a bit of magical realism going on throughout.
1: Oh, absolutely. And here's the thing that the criticism has come up that like, um, one criticism that comes up about me, Edward Drake, straight white dude writing, this story has always been like: How can you understand the perspective of someone uh, who's gone through this? And we've all been teenagers, and we've all gone through these big life events. And you know, uh, everyone has their demons in the past, myself included. Uh, everyone is going to have a, a you know a natural truth that they can draw on to speak to this experience, and. I think what I strived to do was to capture this optimism that I thought was always pre- uh, present there. That she wasn't going. The young woman, who we can't name for legal reasons, uh, there was a judge that, um, Judge Betty King, she slapped a um, um, she slapped a ban on mentioning the young woman's name in media. But what I want to do is capture the optimism of how she wasn't going to let this one event define who she was. And I just think that's a beautiful way to look at a story like this because there's the in uh, Australian cinema, the fastest way to get something financed is to um, make it a true crime story and you throw in some very, very dark themes. And you take something like Snowtown uh, by Justin Cruze, and that was a fantastic film uh, but by God am I, I once was enough for one lifetime for me to watch that.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: what I wanted to do is tell this story in such a way that we could have conversations about the themes and hopefully speak to the people that really should be watching this these kind of stories to understand how uh, what they do. Um, uh, how it can affect people in so many different ways and this isn't just a movie that was made for the young women quote unquote of the world it was also made for the stepfathers and to show the terror of what they're uh, what they do and the lengths that of denial and um, you know the victims of their actions will will have to go to to live and move on with what's happened
0: mm. Yeah, I mean, I know this is a common topic of debate, and I think almost every writer today is considering the extent to which you're able to write about specific experiences and knowing that that criticism is, is going to be coming. But to me, I've always been in favor of saying writing is something that we have by fundamentally just the the process of writing involves inhabiting other characters. Mm-hmm. And it involves inhabiting ways of life that you may never experience yourself because that is the role of the writer. And one thing to remember with film especially, so it is a collaborative medium. You would, if you create the right kind of set and the right kind of team, I mean, there would obviously be women involved in making yeah. this into a film. And if what the principal actor says, I really don't think the young woman would say this or do this. If you're open to to feedback and say, okay, I think yeah, that that's a really valid point. I'll change that. I think that goes a long way. And the second thing is, are you approaching it from a position of empathy, which I think you are here. You know, you're you're not trying to write about something because you feel you know how it should be, but you're trying to be empathetic and see things from a different. That's
1: perspective. exactly it. And my main, one of my absolute major things that I try to do is. Uh... I've taken this story as far as I can go, and I was asked to direct it, and I said, no, it has to be a woman. It has to be a female director, a female point of view. And I, much to the chagrin of a couple other producers, um, it's very, uh, unfortunately, it's very, very hard to find a female, Australian female directors that distributors will, uh, distributors, bond companies, um, Finances will take a chance on, and it's really, it's a very, very small pool that of very talented uh, women that uh, that we've gone out to with the script, and I don't think it's been announced yet, but we have a really cool, like a really, really cool director that's coming on to bring this one to life. And you're absolutely right, there is there's something innate about writing in that we can, same with acting, being able to slip into someone else's shoes to see the world through, through their eyes. And that's half the magic to me. And I think that the more, um, the more we try to delineate who can and can't write what stories, it actually separates us more than, more than anything else. And I a hundred percent believe in giving opportunities to, you know, voices that, have been historically repressed or, you know, marginalized, absolutely. But I don't think we should do that at the expense of, uh, silencing others who want to tell the stories of different points of view. One of my favorite, uh, things to look at is like, look at the writers at, of Straight Out of Compton, which was a phenomenal screenplay, but, uh, I don't think a single writer, uh, on that project, Really set foot in Compton um, outside of you know some of the the characters that they were actually talking about, so yeah
0: yeah, or you know a similar a similar writer would be David Simon, who you know absolutely obviously he will never be able to be someone who lives in one of the projects mm-hmm. in Baltimore, however it's his experience as a journalist and his willingness to go out of his way to consult with as many people as he can involved in yep. that story That because the authenticity comes across. And I think that's one of the things that um, I want to talk to you next about the the screenplay of The Young Woman is this authenticity um, because every based-on-a-true-story screenplay will take some creative mm-hmm. liberties. Um <laughs> it's almost part and parcel of seeing that right at the beginning yeah. of the film is it says based on a true story, you know there's a, a historian out there sitting at home ready to get on Reddit and <laughs> and type up everything yeah. that's wrong with it. However, your screenplay, I think you you tried something a little bit different there which is to specifically call out things you changed in the story itself. I remember at one point, the young woman has a friend called Emily, who is another teenage girl at her school, probably her closest friend, and she's the one who alerts uh, their teacher to the fact that she thinks a young woman is something's going on in her life, and perhaps mm-hmm. it's abuse, and this is the teacher who this, this falls onto death ears, but you specifically mention at one point that Emily is an amalgamation mm-hmm. of two people. In the dialogue, I think, in the actual screenplay, it's the, the young woman who says this. And um, I think you took a risk by doing that, but also the reader kind of respects you for doing it by saying, by being transparent about what's going on in the construction of a story in a way that it feels very postmodern in a way.
1: Oh, hell yeah. Can I tell you where that moment came from directly? Mm-hmm. It was uh, Sure.
0: Yeah. I'd love to know. Sp-
1: Space Jam. Where Bill Murray walks in.
0: Okay, I had never thought it would be Space Jam. <laughs> you could have named a hundred films. Okay.
1: <laughs> I love that movie so much because it's uh, like I'm a huge Looney Tunes fan growing up. Um, Jordan, of course. But then uh, I rewatched it uh, a few years ago. And there was one joke that I never understood until I started working in the film industry where um, Bill Murray walks in onto the court and they're like, How did you get here? And he's like, Well, it seems to pick me up and I'm a friend of the producer. And as when I saw that rewatching it, I was like, That's one of the funniest things of all time because that is the truth. And it is absolutely the truth. So I,
2: Mm.
1: you know, it took a film that I already loved to a whole new level. And then if you look at something about, like what Adam McKay does in something like The Big Short or even Vice. It's those fourth wall breaking moments. There's one moment where there's two dudes sitting, they're about to go to a hedge fund, uh, they're trying to get into a hedge fund and uh, they ask, um, or they turn to the camera and they say, well, it didn't actually happen like this. Here's, here's how it really did happen, but we're just truncating it for time, that sort of stuff. And those moments I think buy you a sense of legitimacy. And so it is a it's a trick for sure but it's something that uh, as an audience member it makes you lean in and take the story like see the story in a bit of a different light and but yes yeah, it's always about the mm. truth and trying to for me it's always going to be that the truth is going to speak to the audience faster more in, uh intensely than you know than a lot of the other content that's out there
0: mm. yeah it it also reminds me a little bit of Kurt Vonnegut when he in the opening lines to slaughterhouse five i think he begins it with all of this happened more or less yep and this is a war memoir that features aliens and so it's that transparency up front of if if i'm doing something in this story that comes across as impossible it's because there's a reason for this you know i'm i'm doing this because i'm trying to process something that i went through or that other people went through the collective of people involved in world war Two, and the only way i can express this yep. is through art i i really like that this is starting to seep into other areas aside from literature where it was very easy mm-hmm. into things like screenplays um more recently
1: yeah not to not to uh i don't know be part of the problem but there is this idea that i'm seeing in a lot of the you know the screenplays I'm responding to, um, this idea of a neo-truth, which speaks to the way that our culture, um, especially America today, uh, handles opinions, facts, and truth.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And so a fact might not be a truth and an opinion might be a truth. And it's people choosing to live in that moment and what part of their their experience and the way they walk through their world speaks to them the most. And so when I, like, for the example for the young woman, turning two characters into one, I did that because I I knew that it would make for more economical storytelling. And, uh, yeah, you know, little little moments like that, that I, th- I feel it's still, it might not be historically accurate, but it is the truth hmm. that is being retained and distilled. And, yeah. So
0: in terms of the wider cast of characters, did that evolve a lot over the course of writing this? Did you... Did you have to make a lot of changes to to kind of simplify yep. what was quite a complicated legal story?
1: do you want to hear about how i the story came to me?
0: Yeah, please yeah
1: so I think I told you a little bit of, of, about it before we were recording, but the I went to a, a very posh hoity toity private boys school in Melbourne, and by God, it was terrible. It was uh, it was insufferable looking back on it, but we all got expelled. We have this tradition in Australia called Muck Up Week, um, and uh, the for legal reasons, for liability purposes, um, the entire the administration expelled all of Year Twelve uh, of my my school. Even if you weren't at school that day, because some of the events that were taking place on campus were. Setting up fireworks, half the student body was high or drunk and all this other stuff. So the fights breaking out everywhere. And so the school just expelled everyone. And my grand I was living with my uh, grandfather and he took it person he, he took it as though I was personally expelled from school. And I was like, All right, what's my punishment? And he's like, all right there's a hotel in the middle of nowhere in this place called Marupna. I'm like, never heard of it. He's like, and that's the reason why you're going to go work there over the summer. You're just going to, so he stuck me out in this place for about six months, just pulling beers. I was like 17 at the time. And I arrive in Marupna and lo and behold, there's this story that's taking, that's unfolding in the town. And the young woman had just been caught. Uh, so after she shoots the um, shoots her stepfather in the head, she um, she now has to deal with what does she do with the body? So she tries to burn it, but it the fire doesn't take because it's not as easy to burn a body as it looks like it is in the movies. And so she dismembers the body and hides it around a campsite, mm-hmm. and uh, she then spends two weeks as a normal teenager. Well. Wow. And it's glorious. She gets to go on dates with the guy that she always had a crush on, but the stepfather said would kill if he ever went near her. And it's a really, you know, that beautiful halo moment. That was the truth for me of being able to, you know, really connect with, with her story. But I was here, so I was working in the bar four weeks after she got arrested. And then there were a lot of stories circulating throughout the town, these horrible bits of gossip and rumor that I touching on the script. But then, uh, so I work at that bar. I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is for this small town. This is um, you know, quite literally one of the biggest things that's ever happened to this small town. And then I go back to, um, I get pulled back from exile and I go back to Melbourne and I'm about to start um, university and I pick up a job working behind the bar of a place called the Limerick Castle. <laughs> and uh, this is in a place called North Melbourne. and You, you can
0: find an Irish pub everywhere.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, it's in Australia, in Melbourne. Oh, every other street corner. Love it. for um, so the, the Limerick Castle, uh, great little bar, little hole in the wall, but it was within walking distance from the University of Melbourne, and a lot of the old-time uh, law professors would wander down there, and funnily enough, what was the one case that they were all talking about and trying to understand and figure out which direction uh, it would go was the story of the young woman. So I was able to, just through pure serendipity, I was able to see both sides of the story. I was able to see the local perspective and also the um, what the, le- the legal community was saying, and mm-hmm. I thought it was fascinating. And I was a precocious little shit back then. So I was asking all these little – I was asking all the – Uh, law professors what the hell was going on with it Um, and you know that had a few too many drinks most of the time Uh, mostly that was my fault as well Uh, but they uh, they'd open up and they'd tell me these incredible opinions and honestly that's half the reason when I first started university I was doing uh, law and media and Mm -hmm. it was because I thought that so much of our world and what we call society is shaped by what we do is um you know shaped by shaped by the law, so I was able to see both of both sides of this story, and I was able to see that uh, you know the young woman was really going up against an institution that had very little safeties and protections in place for her and for others in her situation, hmm. and then everything else that follows is the stuff of hearsay, and it's the stuff that of, oh, we could never prove that this actually happened, but in order for the outcome to have been reached, something to this effect has to happen. And so I touch on that in the screenplay as well, specifically with the stuff to do with the Queen.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you have uh, the Queen of England phones up one of the lawyers, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, which yeah, I th- I, I think that's, again, another another good part of the screenplay where your voice uh your unique take on this is coming through because it's it's in so many ways absurd but then at the same time is it any more absurd than the fact that all the lawyers in australia are qc's their queen's Counsel? is it more absurd than having the queen on the back of all your money or just in as part of this constitution it's it's all tied up in this idea that the you know the fundamental powers uh, are still tied to a distant country where which can also lead to these these gaps in understanding where laws need to be adapted for the local situations
1: that's exactly hundred percent and it's a, a even though it might be absurd it is the truth of what happened in that moment and um uh yeah jeremy rapke uh qc who was uh he was the prosecutor for um, for the case. He had to have the legal protection and the like political cover to do what he did with the case. and the only way he's getting that legal cover if it is coming from not just someone high in um, Australian government, but from a you know a, uh, yeah, someone that does reside on the back of all of our small change. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, maybe we'll talk a little bit about this, you know, this voice, for lack of a better word, I think, you know, it's something that I think comes up a lot for screenwriters, for writers in general, is this idea of finding your voice. And it can almost sound like a cliche as it gets repeated over and over again. But that is when this film is finally made, or people are able to read the screenplay prior to that, they'll see that there is a strong element of individual originality going on throughout this story because you could have simply listed this is what happens very detached third person i'm staying as clear out of this as possible and then instead you're getting very very deeply involved into elements of the characters let's talk about maybe like one of these areas where you took a real kind of uh real risk or you know you were you were experimenting a little bit such as this musical number how how did that come about Mm -hmm. in terms of why did you think did you think a musical number would i know you wrote it but did you think it was really going to work did you have a lot of doubts when you wrote this like am i am i crazy adding in a scene like this Uh, a musical number in a in a drama about a a horrific sexual abuse case
1: Uh, absolutely absolutely yeah thank you for all those kind words about being original but i'm really just um, you know, standing on the shoulders of a lot of films like Emily and Itonia, and um, I think that was also what spoke to the jurors at the Austin Film Festival was the idea of that it's a genre blending take on familiar territory, and that's exactly why I wanted to put in a musical number because you want to see four years of abuse visualized or can we do it in such a way that it keeps the audience engaged moves the story along and uh, you know it is truthful to the experiences of a teenager and I you know I went through some stuff and I knew that I always put it in the abstract and uh I almost like detach from it I made it part of you know that was happening to someone else and uh it's a you know it's a Eons-old survival defense mechanism that we use, and again, I just haven't seen that visualized uh, yet. And so much of the discovery for a script like this, or you know, there's a few, there's a couple of scripts that I've written that I'm like, that are my die on the hill projects. Um, the young woman is one of them. The Aspire and the LA trip are the other two. And when people read them, they're almost a little bit afraid because it's speaking a little too personally and i'm like but no this is this is going to help there's going to be some kid out there a 13 year old that is going to this is going to be their favorite movie because it's going to help them understand the world just that little bit more and you know they're not going to feel like that much of an outsider hopefully uh if we all do our jobs right if uh you know when they see this movie and so that was a huge part of you know if you put a a musical number set to The Killers, Mr. Brightside in the middle of a, a story like this, I'm definitely aware of the audience that I'm playing to. And I think that's something that a lot of writers lose sight of is that what's interesting to write isn't always what's interesting to read, let alone interesting to have all this effort, all this time and love and passion poured into putting it up on screen, uh, Yeah, and I think you just always have to constantly be aware of the audience that you're writing to at any particular moment.
0: So you specifically do want this to be a film for younger people?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I would love, I mean, I remember in high school they showed us 13 um, by uh, Catherine Hardwick.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And I was like, wow, 13-year-olds do this? This is crazy. No, it was a very idealized, very specific Um, vision of you know one direction that a few lives took Um, and so I really hope that the young woman can be a story that can speak to young people just to understand that look if they are going through something like this they're definitely not alone and there are different coping mechanisms all based upon the way that you perceive what's happening to you and yeah I really I mean I really want to speak to that that one person out there that, you know, needs to see this movie. And um, and that's who I wrote it for.
0: And by going to this town and experiencing what life is like there, do you think that helped in terms of understanding how to write these characters, the, the way that they would speak? I mean, growing up in Australia is could have given you different influences as you go, but as you said, you... you Went, had a very different experience going to a private school in Melbourne, for example.
1: Yep, yep. Uh, no, that's exactly it. I could not have been more further from the uh, environment in which this story took place in, but what I tried to do with the screenplay is also detach it from... Uh, as much it is uh, As much as it is set in a small town in Australia, it is a story that can happen and is happening in small towns across the world.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so... The script doesn't actually, especially when we get to the legal, the courtroom drama side of it, uh, we don't spend that much time talking about the, you know, um, the machinations of the Australian court system because it doesn't matter. The truth of the moment is that someone is being railroaded because they aren't, because uh, various judges and prosecutors aren't sure of how a, court, a, juror, a jury will see a court case which is something that it has been told, a story that is as old as time, and that if you go back to Pontius Pilate, I mean, Jeremy Rapke is probably the Pontius Pilate of this story. Oh, Just, yeah. You know, they deviate <laughs> slightly. Um, but, yeah, yeah, I didn't want to – I didn't want my um, entitled upbringing to influence the story that I was telling, definitely. And I, I was constantly aware of that as well, of being like, why am I the person to write this story? I've tried to get so many other people to write it. But,
0: yeah. Uh, yeah, let's talk about themes as well. I mean, theme is, theme is an interesting part because some writers do set out trying to address themes and others will write their story and say, whatever themes you find in this, I'm happy with you to, to experience this and to interpret it. You know, now you've mm-hmm. probably had this story sitting around for a while, and you can start to read it back as almost as if you were a, a fresh reader to it. Because after a certain mm-hmm. period of time, you, the moment you were in as you were writing it, kind of you get that distance. Um, what kind of themes do you do you think that you're hitting on in in this story?
1: I think it's strength. It's a bit of a uh, I don't want to say it's a superhero origin story, but that was definitely going through my mind of um, strength through adversity, of you know the underdog, constantly being underestimated, and yeah, this story was living in my head for literally ten years, mm-hmm. being like here's how, like every time I pitched it, I pitched it to probably at least fifty people, like proper, you want to be a writer? Here's the story you can write, and it's gonna it's gonna be fantastic. And so I break it down for them about, and this is how you do it. I think through vocalizing it so many times, um, I, I wouldn't recommend this as a method to getting to the heart of a good story. But I think there is something to be said that when you do talk about a project you know, and you talk about it out loud instead of it just living in your head or on paper or on a keyboard, you are able to create these connections mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, when we're improvising and innovating on the fly and even as we're having this conversation now, our, our minds are making these jumps that perhaps if we were in a closed circuit, if we were just operating inside our own mind without any outside influence, we perhaps wouldn't be able to see where the story, uh, where the story can go and how it can be told in, in different ways.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And also trying to keep it in, incredibly visual and reminding, I love to write in such a way that the themes can be, you can hold on a moment. And you don't have to put in dialogue, but if the if you can trust that the production, if you can trust that you've given enough um, suggestion to the production design, to the costume, to the performance, that the themes can come out in more than just um, a loaded sentence that has a bit of subtext in it, mm-hmm. if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I think this is something that what I really hope that this podcast does, aside from getting into the heart of certain stories is that other people who are interested in writing will listen to this and certain things will click to them in terms of oh mm-hmm. i'm working on something completely different but this suddenly clicks and i think that one yeah. thing i'm i'm getting from just hearing you talk about this you say oh i sat down in a cafe and wrote this over three days but you didn't write it over three days you wrote it for 10 years yeah. you you That's kept exactly rethinking right. it and every time you you try and either write an outline or try and explain a story to someone, you start to notice where critical junctures need to happen in a story. What What is the beginning? What is the middle? What is the end? How will this work? And of course, when you're telling it to other people, you're getting an element of audience feedback, which is really, really tough, I think, when you're a writer to get, because it's not like, just doing stand-up. You're not going up in front of an audience and no one's laughing and you realize I'm not funny. Mm-hmm. But when you're trying to tell someone about a story, if their response is, man, that sounds great, that sounds like it would make a really great film, then that's yeah. that's the kind of feedback you need to hear. And if you're not getting that feedback, it's like, what, what am I saying wrong? How, how could I change this so that people do respond that way and say, yeah, I would like to see this as a film? Yeah.
1: The, something I've always felt is that a story is only 10% of what makes a movie great. Mm-hmm. And then what we put on paper has to be brought to life by other professionals. Like you need a great, you want to hope that you've got a great cinematographer. Like that's my number one thing. As the director in me, I ride camera department harder than any other department because I know that so many of us will judge the look of a film and equate that to its quality or not. Mm. And so, when I present a screenplay, I'm, you know, I'm trying to gather as many talented individuals, people that are, you know, hopefully so much better than me that I can mm. learn everything I can from them. But the story only go. The story is just the start, and then it's the performance. It's um, you know, the you know the actors bringing these characters to life, and sometimes just for casting reasons, for finance reasons, you don't, you get into this point where you aren't given the ability to work with perhaps the best actor for the role. And so then you have to shift gears a little bit and you have to bring the actor and the personality and the individuality of the actor closer to the character and the character closer to the actor. I'm thinking of some very specific examples that I've faced in, you know, this year um, on a couple of projects, but that that's the magic. And usually that kind of conflict creates something new that hasn't been the, the writer and you could never have even thought about before. And so it's all it all feeds into it. so much of what we do as screenwriters, it's screen, we're writing for the screen. So what we put down on paper, the young woman might be a good story to read. And I definitely had going through my mind that the only way that I'm getting people to get to page 90 of this script is if I can hook them on page one. And so I'm Mm -hmm. pulling out every joke, every pun, every trick that I have to keep the reader engaged so that they, when they walk away, they're not just saying, this is a great story. They're saying, this is a killer screenplay. And even if it doesn't get made, it's a freaking great read. And I'm very fortunate enough to be in a position where I can get stuff. I can. Push stuff towards production, and so um, mm-hmm. I just to any other screenwriter out there. Also, don't be afraid to write the best film you can, not the best screenplay, not the most technically accurate sort of thing. I think if you look at a screenplay like, um, it's a bit of a cliche to say this, but Tony Gilroy's script for um, Michael Clayton. A lot of professors say that that is a uh, actually, it was uh, Brian Kopelman, I think, started it, where he said it's the best, techni- technically the best screenplay ever written. Oh, wow. Okay. And it absolutely is. And it's, it's like a phenomenal read. And I love that movie so much as well. Some incredible blast. But you also look at something like, you know, the Avengers Endgame script or Infinity War. And on the page, those scripts are just like, what the hell is <laughs> happening? But it allows for the creation of a fantastic film. And so there's so many different ways to write. You know, if you look at the Coen Brothers, mm. you could take a Coen Brothers script, reformat it slightly, and then that's a novel. They, they put so much prose into their action line. You know, they're always a good read. And that's your voice. It's uh, part of your voice and also keeping in mind that you're writing stuff to get made. It's not writing stuff just so that it looks pretty on a document. It's a very different
0: perspective very very good points all of these especially with the cohen brothers we looked at one on the podcast uh no country for old men and there is so much influence of cormac mccarthy running through the screenplay version which is something you don't necessarily yeah. get on screen but it does make for a really good read just as a screenplay as a result
1: and that influences every reader everyone that comes to that project when they when they pick that up they can feel the tone the grit they can it's, I mean, can you imagine a Coen, well? Actually, maybe not. But Coen Brothers doing a Blood Meridian would just be incredible. Oh,
0: one day, one day, I think that, <laughs> uh, one day, someone's going to make I, that. I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah, I heard the Russell Crowe was kicking around an adaptation a few years back, but it never got anywhere. But uh, yeah, that'd be maybe even like Denis Villeneuve, Denis Villeneuve if he went back to his um, early days. That would be a hell of a movie. That'd be incredible.
0: All right. I have I have two more questions, I think, on my list. So awesome. do you think you got time for those two?
1: Yeah, yeah, let's hit it.
0: My main question, this is something that I think is going to be on a lot of people's minds right now, is just how do you feel the pandemic has affected your competition win and your feelings about your prospects with this taking it forward to the next steps and what are your current plans to, to work around the pandemic situation?
1: As it pertains to being a writer I'm it hasn't changed what we do in the slightest maybe I just can't go to the cafes that I want to go to to write and I have to write at home a bit more but the pandemic no from a the director producer side of me yeah it was a huge shift absolutely but I thought it was a really interesting opportunity to Honestly, in the marketplace as well, the studios won't be back to full strength before 2024. And so between now and 2024, it's an absolute gold rush when it comes to producing. And if you can get really good stories out there, you have a a leg up because suddenly, you know, the biggest players in town are a little hamstrung by the bureaucracy that they have to go through to get something produced, whereas uh, with or the insurance that they have to go through and all that, whereas with... uh, the independents and independent producers, we can get bonded. Our productions can get bonded. We can get insurance and we can also maneuver our stories and change the scripts in certain ways that still allow for the truth of the story to be there. But maybe it's a little bit more COVID friendly. So, I in for the next couple, I'd say for the next uh year or so, I don't think I'm going to be filming any crowd scenes. Mm-hmm. But um, I just did this movie, I don't know, wrote directed this movie called Apex, and I, I started writing it March 28th, and we were in production in July, I think it was. I think we started in July, and I wrote it because I realized how the pandemic would change production, and it's, so it's six hunters uh, hunting another human um, going through the forest, and what I was able to do is structure it so that our star would only ever have to come in contact with one other actor, which from an insurance liability point of view, made it a very, very hmm. easy project to give them the green light for, because we were able to get COVID protections for a casting crew. Our financier felt safe that we were able to, that even if we did for you know some terrible reason, get shut down or have any of our... You know, and if our players come down with COVID, um, we would still be able to march on and still be able to adapt the story um to move forward and the pandemic yeah it, it definitely changed the way if i want to get something shot what's today today's the twenty ninth of November if i want to get some if i want to get a feature shooting in February, the script that I start writing today has to be aware of the conditions that in in which the film will be made because art isn't made in a vacuum Mm -hmm. and we need to be aware of that. So yeah, no crowd scenes for a little bit, but it's, it's that age old thing where if you give, um, give a writer a blank page and they'll probably hand you, they'll probably struggle with it a lot more than if you Mm -hmm. give them a couple conditions. And I'm fortunate that if I want to get a certain actor for a certain role, uh, you know, at a different, you know, at different tiers, I can write their voice into the screenplay so that when I hand it to them, they can be like, Oh, it's almost as though you wrote it for me. And I'm like,
0: Yeah, wink, wink. <laughs>
1: no, I didn't do that. Wink, wink. Yeah, that's exactly it. So, yeah, yeah, just being aware of who your audience is and how, what lengths it will take to get this film made and mm. that sort of stuff. But yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah a, cu- a couple of the ones that I've, I'm just thinking back to things that I've looked at as part of the the podcast, because of course, it's not just about enjoying a film with the podcast. I've read all the screenplays and watched the film and analyzed them to a bit more depth. And the ones that really, really stand out as just great scripts are often the ones that are written specifically for a very small cast anyway. Whiplash is one of these examples. Mm-hmm. It's two characters, but... I mean, Whiplash is just two characters, Mm -hmm. but maybe at most you could consider it has four characters. And the whole thing just has this energy just driving through it for the entire film. And that's something that's written with conditions. It's something written with that sense of this is going to be a director's first film. It's not going to have any huge set pieces. Chazelle can do First Man years later, but not not his first film. Yep. It's not going to be first. Uh, first Man. So, you know that I think that really can help writers just hone their skills as well. Specifically, thinking about just um, how do I get these these characters interacting with each other, and how do they respond to other characters around them. Sorkin's screenplay to Steve Jobs is really good, like that as well. Another one where there's just very small cast of characters, but you look at them at three different points in their lives the release yeah. of each of the these flagship products for for Steve Jobs. And it just works. Something about it just just works really well.
1: Yeah. The one thing I'd say to that is that the you know, I try to help as many of many friends that are trying to get into writing and try to get their stuff made as possible. And I keep having to remind them that a set piece doesn't mean it doesn't mean you have to have car chases and explosions and that sort of stuff. Sometimes it is just a young drummer playing caravan with all mm-hmm. of his heart out and going for it and having his mentor have this like amazing turning moment where it was like, I hate you so much. And then realizing that the music there that uh, this kid is playing is so good, that is like, okay, let's bury the hatchet right now while the song's going on and let's let's actually make something and make a real moment. And that's a set piece, And I'm going to remember that more than I'm going to remember 90% of the explosions that happen in action movies for the past mm. 20 years.
0: All right. And my final question, this is this is a question I ask every writer that comes on the show. The, the one I asked last is, what is one thing you learned over the course of writing this that you wish you'd known when you started?
1: Um, that uh, writing is just such a beautiful way to connect to other people's points of view. And that I wish I had been more fearless in my first um, 10 years ago. And I wish that I had believed in myself a lot more than, uh, than I do now. That uh, I can be the person to tell this story. And that you can be as well. And that there's nothing stopping you from writing. If so you heard this amazing story that happened to someone on another continent? Speaks another language. There is nothing stopping you from writing that story. And so long as it's truthful and you write it with good intent, then there's absolutely nothing that, uh, no reason that should, that you shouldn't be the one to tell that story or play a part in well, it.
0: I, I love this answer. It's, um, It's got a lot of inspiring sentiment behind it, I think, that we a lot of us need right now, um, especially as we're all operating in these little vacuums in the spaces of our own homes and mm-hmm. and struggling a bit more than usual. Um, just believing in yourself is a good message to keep the hope alive through these these months and Absolutely. things will be back to normal soon enough, I hope.
1: Fingers crossed. The only other thing that I'd ask other people is to uh, don't write a COVID drama because I think <laughs> we've already got a 100 of those in production right now and I'm not sure how many rom-coms set during COVID uh, uh, the audience is really really going to be thirsty for.
0: (laughs) I get the feeling you know we're not going to want to to watch as much COVID stuff to be honest I I get the feeling we're probably not going to want to be reminded of it.
1: Not at all there's this is there's no glory in this battle really I mean I think that You might get a a Soderbergh or an Adam McKay that will come up with a brilliant way to show the struggles and the conflict of the frontline workers and perhaps the creation of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And this might play a moment in um, historic, you know, uh, the stories of certain political leaders uh, when their stories are are turned into films. But I don't think that from the storyteller within me, never wants to revisit uh covid unless i absolutely have to
2: Mm.
1: because no one wins it's just uh there is an incredible book uh albert camus the plague Mm -hmm. and it it, that was a life-changing book for me when i read it and uh anyone that's grappling with how to tell a story during a plague should absolutely use this start there 100 percent, because it It looks at the multiple facets that can, you know, the black markets that can come up the way that the dead are dealt with, um, you know, uh, views and opinions of the plague itself. Mm. But Camus has already told those stories. And so they already exist there. And so whether you have a very novel update for them, I can't see another way into COVID story. But that's just me. And maybe, maybe someone else can, and I would love to be surprised.
0: Wonderful. Wonderful. All right. Well, um, thank you again, Ned, for, for taking the time to talk to me today. And it, it's thank been brilliant, brilliant. To, to be able to pick your brains and learn about um, a screenplay that I really, really enjoyed every page of it. To be honest, I I obviously when these screenplays come out of competitions like Austin, you don't know what you're going to get. And I love to read things that haven't been made into films because It just is a completely different perspective on what the screenplay is. It's so easy to read a screenplay and then watch the film and think these things are linked. But when you're reading one that hasn't been made, your imagination is free to just go wild and really imagine how you would adapt this thing. And therefore, that can be such a great thing as a writer as well to just think ah, oh, this is the kind of stuff I can do. Like, there's no limit to this having to be some sort of approved project up front. You mm-hmm. know, I'm reading something that hasn't been made yet and it's inspiring me. Yep. But I'm really glad that you've, you know, there's some prospects for this one that it, that it hopefully will get made.
1: Yeah, yeah. Is, uh, yeah, very excited that uh, the story's finally going to be able to connect with audiences. Yeah, thank you so much. And hey, what you do with the podcast is phenomenal as well. And uh, any aspiring writer out there should try and go back through your catalog because what you do is also humanize the art of screenwriting in a really interesting way by reminding writers, this is what you write, this is what is shown, this is what we take away from both experiences. And I don't know anyone else out there that's doing what you're doing. So thanks well, so much for inviting you. me on. Yeah. Very honored. All right, thanks, dude. I'll right. uh I'll you. see to you soon.